This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. Providing innovative neonatology solutions for more than 35 years, Chiesi is committed to supporting the neonatology community and the NICU families you serve. To learn more, visit www.nicuconnections.com slash incubator. This is The Incubator, a weekly discussion about new advances in neonatology and the fascinating individuals who make this progress possible. I am Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova-Barbeau. We are neonatal intensive care physicians. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the continued coverage of NeoHearts 2022 with Dr. Daphna Barbeau. How's it going? <laughs> you know, I mean, these interviews have been even better than I even hoped for. So I'm thrilled. <laughs> yeah, it's it's. Um, we're just hoping we're giving you uh, FOMO, right? That's um, right. <laughs> That's pretty much the the goal there. Um, yeah, so so today um, we're continuing our coverage with um, a great guest um, because it highlights number one the fact that as we've said before when we were talking to Dr. Amir Ashrafi, who's the one of the organizers of the conference, it's a multidisciplinary conference and and there is the whole spectrum of providers that is going to be represented. And so we're excited today that we get to showcase some of the work that Dr. Erica Sood is uh, presenting at NeoHeart. Um, if you don't know who Erica is, she's a pediatric uh, psychologist at Nemours Children's Health and an associate professor of pediatrics at Sydney Kimmel Medical College of Thomas Jefferson University. She directs the Nemours Cardiac Learning and Early Development Program and trains psychology fellows in the specialty area of cardiac neurodevelopment. Her research focuses on partnering with stakeholders to develop and test family-based psychosocial interventions to promote family well-being and child developmental outcome. You're going to have fun with this one, Daphna, aren't you? This is this is my my is areas areas of interest. I'm so excited. <laughs> Sorry about that. So, um, without further ado, uh, join us in welcoming to the show, Dr. Erica Sood. Dr. Erica Sood, thank you so much for being on the podcast with us today. Thanks for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. So no, we're very happy to have you, and and so you're you're talking on uh, Saturday at NeoHeart, and the 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 title of your talk is really an interesting one. It's called Psychological Impact of Fetal Cardiac Diagnosis, um, and I guess um, I'm gonna let Daphna ask the first the first question. I know she's been eager to ask you questions. So well, I have a whole list of questions, Ben. So then you may lose your chance to... That's all right. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, we want to talk a little bit about your um, presentation so people know um, what's what's going on. But in general, in general, give us some background on really, which is kind of the crux of your presentation. What is the emotional toll that a cardiac diagnosis has on families? Yeah, cardiac diagnosis has a huge emotional toll on families. And I think, you know, I'm focusing specifically on a fetal cardiac diagnosis, you know, and I, and I want to just point out that, um, you know, pregnancy is a vulnerable time for mental health in general, even when there's not uh, pathology. And so we see that among um, pregnant women in general, we see rates of anxiety, 
um, and stress that are as high as 25%. Um, we see rates of depression that are as high as 10% of the population. Um, and then, you know, when a you know, family receives a, a prenatal or a fetal cardiac diagnosis, the rates of mental health challenges double or even triple. Um, and so we hear from parents that, um, you know, that, that they felt um, very distressed, you know, they felt heartbroken, um, they felt isolated, you know, feeling like, um, you know, friends and family haven't gone through something similar. They don't know, um, they don't know what that experience is like, even if they mean well, they don't always know how to support the expectant uh, parents. You know, we hear from from parents that they felt hopeless um, and really unprepared. Um, and so, you know, I think that those are the more immediate feelings. Um, but certainly, you know, mental health challenges during pregnancy don't just go away at the time of the birth. Um, they continue into that postpartum period. And there's a huge body of literature, um, you know, within the general population, other high risk groups, and and some in cardiac as well, that shows that um, postpartum depression, anxiety, stress um, can really have an impact on child emotional outcomes and developmental outcomes and um, behavioral outcomes. Um, and so if we can intervene, um, you know, as early as possible to help to support expectant parents, um, then I think we can really make a difference, not only for the child and the family, but also for the parent themselves. I think you talked about um, a lot of emotions that people can um understand and, and empathize with. Um, but, um, it's been, it's scattered in the, the literature, but, um, especially when we talk about prenatal diagnosis, there's this, um, grief that parents mm -hmm. feel about this loss of a quote unquote normal or a social media, perfect, um, pregnancy. Can you talk a little bit about, um, your experience with that? Absolutely. I think grief is something that is not talked about a lot. You know, when we think about grief, oftentimes we think about grieving after, you know, a death. Um, mm -hmm. And in this case, you know, the baby isn't even here yet. I mean, the baby's the baby hasn't been born yet. Um, and, and yet expectant parents are grieving. Um, and uh, I think that's a, a feeling that we need to start naming um, and normalizing so that um, families know that this is normal. And this is actually an expected process that they're going to go through. So grieving the loss of those expectations that they had. Um, you know, coming to a place of of acceptance that you know things are going to look a little differently than they expected. You know, from from the pregnancy to the birth to you know the actual um, you know raising the baby and and having and those times that they have with their baby right after birth, where the baby might be going to a cardiac intensive care unit instead of doing skin to skin with them. Can I, Daphna? I'm going to let you get one in, but I'm <laughs> going to get to my list. So. Um. I wanted to ask you, I think it's very interesting that you picked on the subject of fetal cardiac diagnosis, because from our community standpoint as neonatologists, there's always this assumption that this sort of falls on somebody else, right? Mm -hmm. um, well, the counseling, well, the, the cardiologist is going to explain to them what's go what's going to happen, or the cardiothoracic surgeon will explain to them. And I feel like there's this book being passed, and, I'm, and I know that cardiologists sometimes say, oh, the neonatologist will explain that part to them. And eventually the parents are left in this limbo where a lot of the information is, is not, is, is omitted. And so I am wondering 
how do you think we can reform a little bit how we approach, like you said, this very vulnerable time where parents are being disclosed a fetal cardiac diagnosis to actually provide the, to like encircle them and provide them the support that they need to continue moving forward with the pregnancy with some sense of security, considering that there's no such thing as security when you have that kind of diagnosis, but at least some sense of security, knowing that there's a team that has your, your back. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I think that it's appropriate to have the cardiac surgeon, obviously, you know, go over the surgical plan and to have the, you know, neonatologist go over, you know, that may be the plan after the baby's born. Um, but, um, you know, I think that there, there does need to be somebody who is addressing or helping the family to address the emotional and family impact of all of it. And I think that person and is someone who can kind of tie it all together, not, not providing medical information, because that may not be, you know, I'm a psychologist, and it's not my role to provide medical information. Um, but to help families process um, and cope with all of the information they're getting from these different specialists. Um, I don't think it's, it's really, you know, given how complex the care is for children with congenital heart disease, I don't think we can really assume that we're going to find one specialist who can cover all of it, but mm-hmm. we do need one point person who can help the family navigate it um, or, or multiple, you know, and that may be a um, fetal cardiac nurse coordinator who's helping to coordinate the appointments, right? Um, that may be somebody who can support that emotional reaction and understanding to all of the information that they're receiving. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I know, you know, it, at, at Nemours, where I work, um, we have developed a program called Heart Prep. Um, and we are currently piloting it at Nemours. I know there are other programs similarly being piloted at other centers. Um, and our program focuses on helping parents, expected parents, to um, emotionally prepare and cope with a fetal cardiac diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And so as part of this program, um, we're meeting through an app. We're meeting through telehealth appointments. It does not require additional travel or appointments that they have to make outside of the home. You know, sometimes we, we often do it in the evening where both partners can participate. You know, the other kids are already in bed um, and we're really helping the family to process, you know, what information have you received? You know, mm. let's normalize some of the, the emotional reactions that come along with this information. Um, let's find out how you're doing. Let's talk about how each parent is coping perhaps differently and, and how is that helpful and how is that not helpful? Let's talk about how your larger support network is supportive to you and also sometimes saying things that are actually hurtful or harmful. Um, and so, you know, I think it's that role that that can really help to the families to kind of put it all together and process their reactions to all of the information that they are receiving from the different specialists. And I think, you know, the other thing to keep in mind is that um, I think specialists tend to be very focused on specific diagnoses. So mm-hmm. to a fetal cardiologist, you know, counseling for HLHS is going to be very different than counseling for TGA or for Hitology of Fallot. Um, but for a psychologist, it's really not that different. You know, the, the emotions are the same. A lot of the stresses are the same. The challenges in the relationships, the challenges with, you know, um, communication, um, that uncertainty. I mean, that's the same across these diagnoses. And so um, that person can can really help to support a lot of different families who are facing a lot of different cardiac diagnoses. Mm-hmm. And this is an area of personal and professional interest for me. And I know that there are people, listeners, maybe who say, I'm not, I mean, I'm just not into the touchy feely thing. And um, what I've always been struck by is how much our mental health professionals or the coordination professionals um, actually 
really uh, help with with the care, the overall care of the patient, because they are the ones, um, you all are the ones who are identifying knowledge gaps for the parents, um, uh, resource gaps for the parents that really impact um the ability to be discharged, the ability to care for the 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 child, and and those are critical to outcomes. Absolutely, and and actually, you know, many studies that have done in cardiac show that parent mental health is actually a stronger predictor than many of the medical and surgical variables, you know, within this high risk group mm-hmm. um, of child outcomes. And that, you know, we don't know as much about parent mental health as it relates to child health outcomes, but we know a lot about how parent mental health relates to child developmental outcomes, child emotional outcomes, behavioral outcomes, just general psychosocial functioning, quality of life. Um, but we certainly need more research on, on how that also relates to the, the health outcomes. Yeah, you um, you talk about in your in your. Um... Uh, discussion specifically that the impact that parental ongoing parental stress and really trauma from this entire experience um, has an impact on the parenting style, attachment style, um, and and neurodevelopmental outcomes, which is really, as you know, a hot topic for for all of us who are caring for medically complex children. Can you speak to that a little bit more? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there, there is a, um, there, there's a large body of literature in the general population and other high-risk groups that there is a strong relationship between, um, parent mental health, um, parenting style, um, bonding, um, and then a variety of child outcomes. And that might include, I mean, in the case of, um, of pregnancy, that includes preterm birth, that includes um, low birth weight, that includes child emotional, behavioral, neurodevelopmental outcomes. Um, you know, we there's research, you know, again, this is more in the general population that, that shows that, um, m- you know, maternal mental health affects um, maternal sen- sensitivity, right? How, how um, mothers are um, kind of responding to their child. Um, the ways that they parent their child. I, you know, I think we, we need more research in cardiac specifically. There have been studies. Um, there are studies that are underway, but have not yet been published. Um, but I think a lot of the studies in cardiac have been cross-sectional. And so what that, what we know from that is that there is an association at one point in time between parent mental health. It's often mothers. We, you know, we don't know as much as we need to about paternal mental health but certainly between maternal mental health and child outcomes. Um, But the problem is that they are often measured at the same point in time. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you really can't conclude that this is mental health affecting the child necessarily. It might be that if you have a child who, you know, is struggling more with quality of life, struggling more with neurodevelopment, that it's a constant reminder of all the things that your child has gone through, which makes it harder to, you know, to, to cope. Um, and, and then, you know, parents are going to have more anxiety, right? It could go that direction. It could be there. There's a third variable that we're not accounting for. Um, and so I think we just, we need longitudinal studies that can, you know, that can really look at, um, the effects of maternal mental health, paternal mental health on parenting styles on, you know, um, uh, child, you know, 
bond, uh, infant, sorry, infant parent bonding, um, and then all the way down to long-term emotional, behavioral, and developmental outcomes. And I know there are some studies underway. So my next question, um, Erica, is something that you bring up, obviously, during your presentation, which is something we've talked about on the podcast, and that's trauma-informed care. And what's interesting to me is that we've talked about trauma-informed care in the context of a child being in the NICU, which to us constitutes a trauma to begin with for the family. But um, it's interesting that I personally, at least I had not th thought about this on the front end, on the prenatal diagnosis aspect of, of care. And so I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit as to what that looks like when we're trying to practice trauma-informed care in the prenatal consultation phase. Yeah. So, you know, trauma-informed care is a broad term. Um, mm -hmm. And there are a number of different organizations who have definitions of trauma-informed care and what that looks like and, and recommendations. Um, but none that I'm aware of, at least, have been specific to the fetal period and to fetal cardiology. Um, and so, um, you know, I think the general, um, uh, the, the general point of trauma informed care is that, that we, um, we need to be, um, aware of, um, the trauma that, that, that patients and their family members may be experiencing as part of healthcare. Um, and yes, the healthcare is helping the family, right? It's helping the patient but it can also be traumatic. Um, and we have to acknowledge that both of those can exist. Mm -hmm. um, and then we need to actively avoid re-traumatization whenever possible. Um, and that is thinking about word choice. You know, I think in cardiology, we like to um, use the word failure a lot. Um, <laughs> so growth failure, so failure. I mean, failure is just thrown into everything. And those terms are used with parents. And I've heard from parents that they say, when we hear the word, failure, whatever it is, we automatically go to failure as a parent. Um, do we need to use that word? Can we, can we describe it in a different way? Um, and so it's things like that, um, that are um, maybe minor points, things that, that seem that we might not even be thinking about, but to a parent, it, it means everything. Um, you know, there's some ways I think that parents, when they first learned of the cardiac diagnosis, it, it it may have been said in a way, and this may not have been by the fetal cardiologist. This may have been by the person who, you know, initially detected that there was something wrong with the baby's heart and the 20-week ultrasound, but it may have been said in a way that the parent perceives as blaming, um, that they did something to cause this. Um, and that is very traumatic, you know, for parents. Um, and so there's just a lot of things that it, it can be just how something is presented that can help to reduce trauma. Um, I think the interesting thing I've thought a lot about with fetal cardiology is that unlike a lot of other traumas, um, we are sort of preparing parents for future trauma. Not only is there the trauma of the, um, of the initial diagnosis, but there's also going to be future traumas, right? Or at least potential traumas. You know, they're be handing their baby over for heart surgery, seeing their baby after hospitalization, complications in the CICU. Um, you know, a, a whole slew of things that we know can happen for complex babies, you know, with, with heart disease. And so not only are we trying to help support them around the trauma they are, they've already experienced, but we're also helping to prepare them for the possibility of future trauma. And I think that, you know, one of the things that's really important that I've heard a lot from parents over and over again is we need to know that trauma is a, um, 
almost expected part of this process so that we can start to prepare and we can look for signs. And, and I think that's not something that's commonly discussed, right? Like during the, the preparation period, we're not commonly saying, you know, here are all the things to look out for to know that you might need extra help mm-hmm. later. Um, these are the traumas that you might experience. Um, and here are the signs and symptoms. Um, and it's normal and it's okay. Um, and there's nothing wrong with you if you experience those things. It's interesting. I'm going to plug the podcast episode that we released last uh, this just this past Sunday with Dr. Uh, Avroy Fanaroff, where he said, and it's and it's he's echoing exactly what you're saying now. He said that your words are like a sword; wield them very carefully. And and it's exactly right. I mean, we tend, like you said, the word failure. We tend to throw that around so so sometimes carelessly, and when a parent hears failure in relation to their child, it's just devastating. And it's so, yeah, it's it's kind of silly in a way because it's like, no, it's, I mean, it doesn't mean all the things that you perceive them to mean, but yet that feeling over overwhelms you. So um, it's, kind of, it's kind of cool when back-to-back guests sort of echo each other. It's kind of nice. I like that. Yeah. Well, in addition, I think, I think you've brought up such an important point. Um, so often in medicine, we've learned to, um, we were taught to, to support families by telling them that like, we've got it under control. Right. And, um, I'm not going to generalize, but we don't all have the best training in socio emotional, uh, learning. And, um, and so, giving people this opportunity to say like you you can help identify help families identify these feelings that they're having and that instead of saying like it's going to be fine don't worry about it say like we expect that you're going to worry about it and um this is this is how we can help um because those feelings are going to come up instead of making them feel even more isolated that they're having those feelings that we told them not to ha- have Right. Absolutely. I mean, I've heard from parents over and over again, you know, that they felt blindsided by those feelings. And and when they did come up, they didn't know what they were. Um, they didn't put the, you know, post-traumatic stress or PTSD kind of like framework on it because they, they didn't realize that um, parents going through this could, could experience post-traumatic stress symptoms. That was something that they thought only, you know, assault victims or the military, you know, veterans could experience. Um, and so it's just education, you know, and I think the other thing to keep in mind is that, um, you know, doctors and nurses can provide excellent medical care um, and parents can still be traumatized. And those two things are not an either or. Um, and so just by saying, we've got this, we know how to treat your baby. Um, that doesn't mean that the trauma is not going to be there. It also doesn't mean that, you know, they're not going to experience anxiety and worry and feelings of isolation because other people in their support network aren't going through something like this and can't really relate. Um, and so I think we, no matter, you know, how well the care goes, um, we still have to prepare families for these emotional impacts. And, and actually one thing to keep in mind is that, um, objective disease severity does not predict, um, mental health outcomes. There is, there is in most cases, no relationship. Um, it is, it is parent perceptions. It is coping skills. Um, Like the hospitalization, I think does play a role, um, but not the actual disease severity 
Oh, we, we've had parents on the podcast who have told us, hey, I stayed in the NICU for five days and the the trauma they experienced is just as great, if sometimes not greater than other parents who could have experienced like two months in the ICU. So you're absolutely right when you say that it's perception. And Daphna, to go back to what you were saying, you're saying we're not being trained in so psycho-emotional, um, I don't know how you want to say this, training. I think it's even worse than that. It's that we're we're as tr- as yeah, medical trainees, yeah. we're being blunted all the time mm-hmm. to just tough it out, tough it out, and that sometimes yeah, for transpires. Ourselves, right? Yes, of course. And then yeah. we're and then we're and we and then we we um, we transpose this onto our patients. And be like, all right, like okay, I'm going to tell you, and then you're gonna you know it's going to be fine, you know, like just just toughen up, right? Because that's that's how we came through the ranks. So yeah, I think you guys are 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 very accurate and astute points you're making. Um, Erica, I wanted to talk to you before the end of the show on on something you've alluded to before, which is the heart prep. And I think mm-hmm. um, I think that's a very interesting idea because when we've been thinking about prenatal cardiac consultation for congenital heart disease, right? We think of this as a single instance of like, all right, have you met with the surgeon? Have you met with that person? And what I liked about the um, the flow, the, the 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 diagram that you have on one of your slides is that you break it down in like four to five steps. Right where yeah. you, 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 it's it's a process where you arrive at a position where your mental well being is better when your baby is born through first a diagnosis. There's like an adjusting phase, a connecting phase, and then a preparing phase. I really like that very much because that's something that Daphna and I do in our NICU when we have difficult diagnoses. It's trying to just get the parents to just grasp with certain information and then slowly but surely introduce them to more and more details about the disease and not just dump uh, a lot of medical information on on one sitting and just say, tell us what you want to do. So can you tell us a little bit as to how the heart prep came about and and what are the response you're seeing from parents uh, who are going through this process? Absolutely. So um, the program uh, was designed in partnership with parents and clinicians from eight health systems. So um, there are, at the time that this um, program was developed. Um, there were eight health systems within a network called PEDSNET, which is a network of eight um, pediatric health systems in the United States. And so we all work together to um, to design this intervention. And we um, engaged parents who had received a fetal cardiac diagnosis, both as partners on the study team. So they actually helped to direct some of the research in terms of the questions that we asked the participants, and then also as participants. So we had 50 diverse um, mothers and fathers from eight care centers who had previously received a cardiac diagnosis um, during the prenatal period. Um, and so they worked with us to identify, number one, you know, what should the goals of the intervention be? What are we actually trying to target during pregnancy right. to affect long-term outcomes? Because it's not it's not clear, right? Like, wh- what is it exactly that we need to do during the pregnancy before they've even had the surgery, before the baby's even born, to affect outcomes after all of those things. Um, And and what what parents really um, kind of told us is that we need to help them to reduce distress. And that includes anxiety and depression and, and, you know, anger and kind of all those emotions that come with that diagnosis. Um, We need to help them feel less isolated. Um, Parents talked about feeling very, very alone. We need to help them feel more prepared. And this is not necessarily, um, you know, again, knowing the medical information, but that, that parenting self-efficacy of like, I've got this, we can do this. We feel emotionally prepared for what we're going to handle um, or what we're, we're about to face. And then hope. And, and hope is really kind of the whole spectrum. Um, we need to increase hope. Um, feeling hopeless is, is, um, is, not, 
is not the goal. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but that does happen for so many families. And so what we what we learned from them was, you know, there are certain things we need to do to affect each of these outcomes, but they all, you know, we can't affect every outcome at once. And so the first step really is we have to help them reduce that distress. We have to help them work through that initial um, anxiety, that initial fear, the, the feelings of feeling the grief, the heart, you know, feeling heartbroken. Um, and then once we help them through those early emotions, then we can start working on helping them feel more connected. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're feeling a little better, um, or li- things are a little less overwhelming. You know, let's talk about peer-to-peer support. Let's talk about how you're interacting with your social network. How, you know, let's talk about the challenges that might come up. Some of them we can't prevent, but at least to know that those are normal and common and others have gone through this um, and talk about how those might, what we can potentially help. Um, and then lastly, really help to prepare them for some of the stressors they're going to experience after the birth. And this might be, you know, the CICU is is not a typical environment you're used to. There's, there's, you know, there's tubes, there's, say the there's least. cords, there's, um, there's I, a lot, I, right? I get there's terrified a, when I have feeding. to go do a consult in the CC, in the CVICU. So, can... <laughs> <laughs> right. So we have to prepare them for that. You know, that this is, this is not like other things you've experienced, um, you know, there's going to be a period of time where you can't hold your baby and that that can be very difficult. It can be very hard to see your baby after heart surgery. Um, sometimes even just the sights and the sounds of the CICU, right? Not any particular thing happening, but just the beeping and the busyness and the, and the intensity of it all. And so helping to prepare them for that. And that's where we start talking about the trauma. We don't talk about that early on. Um, but later, you know, we do talk about there might be some things you experience that feel traumatic mm-hmm. and that's common. And here are the things to look out for. Um, and so that when these things do happen, um, and if they do have these feelings, it's not the first time that they're kind of hearing about it or, you know, or they hear about it a year later and say, oh, that's what I had. Right. So that, that is the goal of the program. And it is definitely um, in terms of the number of times that we meet, um, we, we, our target is three to six times, um, depending on the, the family and sort of where we, where they are in the pregnancy when, when we start, um, so that we can go through each of those phases. Um, but you know, we, we will go up to 12 meetings and I have had, you know, families who will meet, choose, that's their choice. They choose to meet 11 or 12 times. Um, and that's because they feel that they need that or another diagnosis comes up, you know, maybe halfway into the pregnancy or into the, um, a few weeks before the baby's born, I should say, um, they find out the baby has Down syndrome, you know, and now they're going, they're back in that adjustment phase. Um, and so it, it is something that happens over time. I don't think that one meeting is enough for most people when we're talking about um, psychological support and coping. What I love about the paradigm um, that I hope everything everybody listening can learn for from is this is not um, specific to cardiac diagnosis, right? And we we right. could offer this type of support to every family in the NICU, including the extremely preterm baby, right? Who, yeah. Whose um, family is going to process the this life in the NICU. And specifically, I, I think um, when we talk about prenatal consults, so we are called many times as the neonatologist um, or neonatal um, staff to come to a prenatal consult for somebody who will be admitted to the NICU or who needs to make some decisions before admission to the, the NICU. And we have this Many of us were trained in this concept, like, I'm going to vomit out all this information. And before I leave the room, I expect that the family will give me the decision. When in reality, um, 
when reality, we'll get a lot more done if we say, you know, this is the information I have. Can I come back after you've had some time to mm-hmm. think about it? Um, and how do you think that changes the way families process the information we give them and and it improves their confidence with the decisions that they make? Absolutely. I mean, I think that, um, you know, again, going back to the cardiac diagnosis only because that's what I'm most familiar with. Parents will often say it's like Charlie Brown. It's like, wah, 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 wah. When once they hear some information, they just shut down. They can't process it anymore because the emotions take over. And I think that relates to this as well, right? When you're had, when you're giving information and then you're expecting parents to make a decision right then and there, it, it's just not, it's often not possible um, because they have to cope, adjust to the emotional aspects of it before they can kind of continue to process the information and make decisions. Um, besides the fact that people need to consult with family and other people that are important to them in their lives um, in, before they make decisions as well. Yeah. We're, we're getting to the end of our time. Um, I know some people will say, well, I, I heard Dr. Sud say they, that some families get 12 sessions and we just don't have the, the time to, to yeah. do that. So for our centers who maybe don't have as much um, support as your center does, Um, or for someone who's trying to advocate for more support in their units, at their hospital level, at their um, corporation level, um, you know, what do you say to those people that say, you know, that um, how do you implore to them that this is an integral part of our care? Absolutely. And and I think, um, you know, again, our target was three to six. Um, at least three. And um, the families that choose to go over, you know, that might not be something that we offer down the road if we feel like that additional time isn't really adding additional benefit. Um, but I think what's, you know, that's, we're just still in the phase of exploring, right? Of what's, what, what do families want, what's working, what's not working. But I think what I really did want to emphasize is that we have families fill out a questionnaire, like a survey, um, an acceptability survey after three sessions. It's always after three sessions. Um, three meetings, and the um, the we have a a scale from zero to four, where zero is not at all. Four is very much it's the highest you can go. Um, and we have sixteen items that are all about how helpful did you find it, how much do you like that you can use your phone to participate. Because again, this is all through video appointments. Mm-hmm. This is not they don't come in a person. Um, how much did you? How would you? You know, would you recommend this to other families? And our median score of all the families that have participated, which is uh, twenty five so far. Um, is four on a scale from zero to four. And our mean is I think 3.8 something, right? I mean, it's, it's very close to four, which is the highest you can get. Um, and that's after three meetings. And we have, even the families that went to 12, we still had them complete that after three. Cause we really wanted to know, like, if, if we're saying three is the minimum, like, are we actually making a difference with three? And, and it seems that we are, I mean, they're perceiving that it's reducing distress. They're perceiving that it's reducing social isolation, increasing parenting self-advocacy, increasing hope, which are our outcomes. Um, And so I guess what I would say is that, sure, if you have more resources and a family seems like they need more, you know, certainly we can offer that. But it does seem that after three meetings, um, we are making a difference and families are really appreciating it. And and, sorry, one more point. I know we're almost out of time. Um, We have approached 35 expectant moms after fetal cardiac diagnosis. And 30 of the 30, uh, sorry, 30 of the 35 have participated. Um, and I think 27 of those have completed. So um, our, um, you know, the rate of participation is very, very high. And the rate of completion is very high. Um, this is something that families really want and I think need. Yeah. 
I, I just, I think we're going to end on that, but I just love the idea of you leveraging some of the things we've learned from the pandemic about telehealth and, and all that stuff to be able to be present for your patients, right? I mean, what we hear from uh, physicians and providers, like, well, telemedicine is okay, but like, I cannot really lay hands on the patient, cannot do proper physical exam. But then there's all these instances where telehealth is actually great. And yeah, you could do 12 sessions yeah. without having to worry about transportation issues. And all you need to, all you need is a device and an internet connection, which thankfully in the US, a lot of people have already. So that's, that's awesome. I really like that. Very, uh, very low friction type of uh, solutions. I really like that. Yeah. Well, Dr. Sue, thank you so much for making the time. We hope that we've given the audience a peek as to some of the great things uh, you're going to mention at uh, your conference. And uh, we will leave some information about how to get in touch with you if people are interested in this area of prenatal fetal cardiac diagnosis. Thank you. Thank you so much for making the time and uh, best of luck on your future endeavors. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Incubator. If you liked this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Instagram or Twitter at nikupodcast. Personally, I am on Twitter at Dr. Nicu, spelled D-R-N-I-C-U, and Daphna is at Dr. Daphna MD. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you. <laughs>